1: Welcome to New Books in Geography. I'm your host, Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University. My guest today is Jason W. Moore, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Coordinator of the World Ecology Research Program at the State University of New York, Binghamton. Jason is an extremely prolific scholar and the author of two dozen articles and essays about world ecology. He's also somewhat of a chameleon. Jason has a Ph.D. in geography, teaches in a sociology program, but his work is mostly historical and his scholarship has affinities with work in environmental history. His ability to synthesize difficult theoretical ideas and empirical facts in a clear and compelling way is a hallmark of his work. And today we'll be discussing his recent book, published by Verso, Capitalism and the Web of Life. Um, So welcome, Jason, to New Books in Geography.
0: Thank you, Bob. It's an honor to be here.
1: I didn't have there yet, to actually. Uh, the last half of your title is Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital. And I thought that maybe we could start today um, by talking a little bit about your academic background and maybe the sort of research that you did before your recent book, or maybe how research from the past decade or so has fed into this recent work. Absolutely. Well, this
0: is one of these books, Capitalism and the Web of Life, that I felt had to be written because there was a particular conversation that was emerging that we see in many different places, from from the physical sciences, from uh, the humanities and social sciences. And that conversation is basically groping, stumbling, moving towards a position that says... First, humans are a part of the web of life. Humans are one of many species in the world. And second, that we need analytics in order to tell stories, in order to think through our methods, our frames of what we're investigating, to think through our conceptualizations and our theorizations of how the modern world in particular works in a post-Cartesian kind of way. Mm -hmm. So I wrote Ecology in the Right, and I wrote, It was originally called Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital. Uh, And I changed that around uh, for a variety of reasons, partly because Web of Life, people say, well, what's the Web of Life? Uh, uh, Because people think they know what nature means, but they're not sure what the Web of Life means. And I think that 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 in itself is an important opening to a conversation. So I wrote this book to support and sustain and encourage a set of conversations around what we're calling world ecology, which basically says that power, wealth, and nature are unthinkable except in relation to each other, and that that can help us develop new narratives, new theories, new stories, new concepts about how the modern world works. Now, to link up with your question, uh, that meant – Finishing Capitalism and the Web of Life meant that I put Ecology and the Rise of Capitalism, which is a story of the rise of capitalism as an environmental history, but as much more than simply an environmental history. And that weaves a lot of these themes of world ecology, world economy together uh, in what I think is a new or or different uh, uh, approach to thinking through the questions of power, capital, and nature in a long historical perspective. So these projects, uh, 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 a broadly theoretical project of capitalism and the web of life, and a broadly historical uh, project, Ecology and the Rise of Capitalism, are very much in conversation with each other.
1: Okay. So are those actually, when the way you talk about that, you're talking about that as separate projects, this book and another book project, or you see this all all kind of as a piece in this book?
0: This is all an ongoing uh, project. For me, it's been very difficult to do what I think – Most successful social scientists are taught to do, at least we're taught to do this in graduate school, which is to compartmentalize and to really bracket in a very strong way. And uh, in some ways, that makes my life very difficult. In other ways, uh, I'd like to think that uh, it maybe leads me to some interesting questions, if not always compelling answers. So uh, for me, I think, um, and you see this in geography very strongly, that there is an issue Uh, between a broadly defined critical geography, a broadly defined political ecology, and a uh, rigorous and compelling and sustained commitment to historical analysis. And there are, of course, many exceptions, but I think that that's that's a fair commentary. And so part of this project is to bring history into the core of critical geography and political ecology, in uh, perhaps a different way, in a more sustained and world historical way. And that speaks to another dualism that uh, uh, critical geographers have found themselves in, which is a dualism between the global and the regional, Mm -hmm. and an ongoing battle over how to resolve that. Um, In sociology, the problem is really the inverse of what you see in critical geography, that in sociology, there's not a sense place matters. Uh, that regional specificity is an important problematic in itself uh, but there is a sense of a, of a long-term world historical uh, process of making this modern world that we live in so uh, I think part of what this book capitalism and the Web of life encourages is a conversation between a world historical tradition both in history and in and in historical sociology with the the core principles are the core themes of critical geography and political ecology.
1: Why do you think that uh, perhaps this kind of historical perspective, at least maybe in the way that you're discussing it, has not been a core aspect of, if not critical geography, then political political ecology? Um, I think that that
0: political ecology really... Developed as a regional science, for lack of a better term, I think the political ecology, uh, you know, almost in its DNA says the region is the real place of real historical geographical change. Sure and so i think that that that, uh, that falls into a trap of a of a kind of dualism that's been highlighted by other traditions say around nations as imagined communities and diasporas but also uh uh the the tradition of burdall and wallerstein that says there is such a thing as a capitalist world economy or a world ecology, as I would say, that ha- is a real place unto itself. It has its own specific cultural dynamics, uh, uh, governance dynamics, patterns of markets, patterns of class formation that are distinct from that of North America or Western Europe or South Asia.
1: Sure. Um, you you talk about kind of your historical work that you're doing here and maybe some of the connections with political ecology. But one of the things that I've been struck by reading your work over the years, including this book, is some um, affinities, tensions maybe that you have with world environmental history and also big history that's been emerging more recently. Um, scholars such as J.R. McNeil have really emphasized the relationship between um, society and the environment over vast Temporal and spatial skills So how do you see your work as both Similar and different From these larger moves In terms of world environmental history Particularly from historians
0: Well John McNeil Is a great scholar and has done uh, uh, Truly Great work in Promoting world environmental History uh, Both in a a popular Sense and uh, in the discipline Of history World environmental history is not really uh, a historical field in the way that historians like to think about it. Historians think about real history in the same way that geographers think about real research, that is, in terms of a regional place. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot of advantages, and it does a lot of really important things. Uh, the, the solutions to this have been two. In world environmental history, the solutions have been to add up all the regional stories into a world environmental history that is an aggregate. Mm -hmm. In political ecology, the solution has been to invoke a series of theoretical arguments about the world economy that end up leaving the world economy as a kind of context or as a kind of theoretical context uh, or theoretical construct rather than a historical geographical whole in its own right. So, world environmental history, as a field, has had an extremely difficult time with understanding modernity and understanding the modern world system as what I would call a capitalist world ecology. It provides the elements of that analysis, uh, but is is until at least recently, and uh, uh, perhaps there are some 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 openings there uh, until recently, I think that that world environmental history has remained a kind of either an aggregate of regional stories or a very strange, ahistorical cobbling together of big vectors. We see this in the great acceleration narrative of the Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. We're going to look at population or commercialization or uh, industrialization. We're going to take very big black box categories and then tell a history of human impacts on the environment. And you can see from the way that I've just characterized that, and I think it's a fair characterization, that there's a dualism there that says humans are over on one side. That's the uh, human relations go into one box, and then we're going to chart their consequences in another box that we're going to call nature. And so there are big problems right away with dealing with all of the differences amongst humans, the questions of empire, of class, of race, of gender, and so on and so forth.
1: So if I understand you correctly is that world environmental history in your estimation is not doing as good a job as maybe as it could of of, of looking at kind of questions of power and social difference between class and race and, and gender and these larger important historical processes such as in, um, kind of imperialism, colonialism, things like mm-hmm. that. Am I, am I understanding you correctly?
0: I think I think that's absolutely right. At the same time. It's been the pioneering work of uh, uh, scholars like Carol and Merchant in The Death of Nature, who shows that the rise of capitalism, the rise of modern science, and the transformation of gender relations are all of a piece. And the transformation of environmental uh, relations are all of a piece with, with gender, empire, science, capital. Now, I think the other thing that I would highlight is that neither political ecology nor world environmental history nor any of these other environmental studies uh, fields have really gone into the heart of political economy and economic history to ask, how is the co-production of nature? And we can talk more about what I mean by that, but Mm -hmm. how is the co-production of nature fundamental to the big patterns of boom and bust in the modern world. So we still have a political economy that is brilliant in many ways and is also what we could call social reductionist or human exemptionalist, is is really not able to, up to now, to take questions of of nature and the co-production of nature as central to the conceptual apparatus and theorizations of, of political economy.
1: Um, connected to this is uh, it, it seems that one aspect, particularly this book and some of your other work is real, real deep critique of this dualism of like environment and society and needing to kind of think past that. Um, and I was really thinking about that today because I teach the introductory environmental studies course, um, at least this semester I do. My other my colleagues teach at other semesters. But the, our introductory environmental studies course at SU is called Environment and Society. Right. And we use a textbook that is uh, co-written or co-edited by uh, three political colleges, Paul Robbins, John Heinz and Sarah Moore. It is also called Environment and Society. So even within geography, it is quite common um, to, to still use that. And it's but it seems like you really want to encourage readers to break down kind of this pernicious dualism between society um, In nature. So, can you talk a little bit about why you think that's both important intellectually, maybe, or in a scholarly way, and also politically?
0: Well, I think it has implications both intellectually and politically. So, intellectually, once we begin with these two big categories and we assume a fundamental difference between them of society and nature, it's very hard to get to the relations. Now, the scholars that you just mentioned are outstanding and brilliant and do get to the connections, but I would say in the field as a whole, we are still very trapped in the idea that society pertains to human relations relatively independently of the relations of nature as a whole. And so nature becomes a set of objects, a site of consequences, and isn't really brought into the core conceptualizations either of, of difference around class, race, and gender or a political economy of how capitalism produces booms and busts and how that relates to the web of life and uh, uh, and also how the web of life shapes the possibilities of capital accumulation and capitalist boom and bust. I think one of the fundamental realizations that I had as I was finishing this book is that these categories, whether we call it humanity or society and nature, so society on one hand and nature on another hand, that the modern world from the 16th century developed around this premise that humans would be uh, 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 over on one side in one neat and tidy box and then nature would be in another tidy box. And here's what surprised me, but didn't surprise me, but then surprised me is that most humans during this period, I mentioned the work of Carolyn Merchant on gender and the rise of capitalism. Uh, most humans in this period between 1450 and let's say 1750, just just for starters, were not in the category of society. Yeah. Uh, so indigenous peoples, mm-hmm. nearly all women, African slaves, and m- most or many men with white skins who lived in uh, quasi-colonial regions like Ireland in the early modern era or uh, Poland in the 17th century. These people, these humans, were not part of this category of society with a capital S or humanity with a capital H. And indeed, after 1750, when we do have an emergent discourse around human rights, uh, driven and prompted in part by the Haitian Revolution, slave revolts, and, and, and anti-abolitionist sentiment, uh, still there was an ongoing struggle around who would get to count as part of what Adam Smith called civilized society, or what we call today humanity with a capital H. And so I think part of what we need to understand is that this language that we've inherited, And I want to say it's not a bad thing to use it, but we should be conscious. This language that we've inherited of humanity and nature and then adding them up in a kind of green arithmetic, uh, there is a legacy of white supremacy, of racism, of profound uh, uh, sexism and gender politics and – uh, of course, with the class politics of the modern world. So, uh, as I say in the book, these categories of humanity and nature with the uppercase H and N, they drip with blood and dirt just as much as the separation of the peasants from the means of production. Mm-hmm. And that might sound like an overstatement, but I don't think it is. And I'll just I've given a few examples. But one that really strikes home to me is that when the Spaniards come to colonial Peru, which was a vast region encompassing Bolivia and Ecuador and and Peru today,
1: they had a word for indigenous peoples, and it was naturales. Mm -hmm. Yes, I see that. I see where you're going with that. Uh, Building on that, I'd like to get a better sense of how you see your work is different from – a whole set of scholars really over the past couple decades who have also been trying to break down this dualism. Because if I had to think of one kind of overriding theme in many parts of Green Thought, particularly in the academy in different parts of the social sciences and history, is this idea of hybridity. Um, you know, I'm thinking of sort of um, uh, Bruno Latour saying, like, we have never been modern, so this sense that we're nature and culture are separate He's trying to break that down. Donna Haraway talking about cyborgs needing to think of nature and society mixed together, or environmental historians deploying different metaphors, such as Richard White in his 1990s book, The Organic Machine, again, wanting to look at um, relationships between nature and society and really breaking that down. So in one sense, it seems your work kind of fits within this larger kind of movement. But uh, I imagine you see it as 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 different from these people I've just mentioned in important ways. Could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Absolutely. All of these scholars, Latour, Haraway, White, uh, many others, Neil Smith and David Harvey, uh, Carolyn Merchant. uh, We could go on for a long time. I see my work as an extension an elaboration uh, and a conversation with these, these scholars. Essentially, I think the big problem that I've tried to tackle, and it's a problem, it's an intellectual problem that Haraway and, and Latour and White and others have set up is how do you move from a philosophy that says humans are a part of nature into writing stories about the modern world, into telling the history of of the modern world and what kind of impact does that movement from philosophy to history have on our methodological frames and our conceptual premises. Now you mentioned White's book, which is absolutely magisterial, The Organic Machine. I think that is, in my view, an extraordinary world ecology text. And not only because it's a brilliant short book on its own, which uh, for listeners, it is a, uh, a kind of two century history of the Columbia River in the Pacific Northwest and how uh, labor and the work of the river were human labor and the work of the river were were inter- intersected. And that's really one of the inspirations for my argument mm-hmm. and to uh, my argument is in many ways about how do we put the politics and analytics of work in a broad sense, Uh, not just human work and not just human work in industrial production, but the work of raising families, the work of social reproduction, and the work of of nature as a whole. So uh, for me, White has been absolutely inspirational, and so too Donna Haraway and uh, uh, Bruno Latour. Latour is problematic because at the end of the day, you cannot identify durable structures and patterns of power and inequality with actor network approaches. So there's a problem there. I think Latour raises the question of interconnection, but then it becomes very, very difficult to do the history of the modern world, either on a regional or a global scale, with that kind of framework. And so in the world ecology conversation, we have many people joining in who come out of a conversation with Latour and various hybridity approaches and are um, interested in seeing how can we translate or transform these ideas of object-oriented ontology and relationality into new workable analytics that are critical of capitalism and that narrate the history of capitalism and its limits. Haraway, what can I say? Uh, Haraway is absolutely uh, an ongoing inspiration. I've just finished a uh, a very nice edited volume called Anthropocene or Capitalocene with an absolutely beautiful essay by Donna Haraway. Uh, She, uh, as listeners may know, has also been moving towards the idea of the Capitalocene instead of the age of capital, instead of Anthropocene, the age of, of man. And I think, That's a sign of the times that we're living in, and also the fact that Donna and I and other people began using this concept of the capitalist scene at the same time. I think that there's an an awareness now within a critical and materialist cultural studies and science studies that says, yes, capitalism matters, and that we need to come to grips with the history of capitalism in order to see the limits of the present and the possibilities of the future.
1: Well, that's a good uh, segue for us to talk about the Anthropocene and the Scene. You have a uh, a chapter in your book uh, about those terms, and then you also have um, uh, a new edited collection that maybe we can talk about a little bit later on this subject. Now, the Anthropocene has, of course, received a great deal of attention from Earth scientists, from uh, different environmental or environment and society scholars, as problematic as that term may be, uh, environment and society scholars in sociology, geography, environmental history, um, as well as activists. Um, But you're clearly uneasy with that term um, as well, so much that you've devoted a chapter of your book and a new edited collection. So maybe you could tell the listeners, just to remind them, uh, maybe what the Anthropocene is and what you see as the potential limitations of that term.
0: Thanks, Bob. That's a great question. And the Anthropocene literally means age of humans. And the capitalocene literally means age of capital. So these are two different vistas on the history of the modern world. The Anthropocene is uh, one of those concepts that has escaped academia and is now uh, uh, in the popular awareness. It's a concept that has graced the cover of The Economist magazine. The mm-hmm. uh, New York Times writes approvingly of it in an editorial. Uh, people uh, uh, who are very uh, centrist and mainstream and radicals uh, like the great Eric Swingedow or Mike Davis seem to be very captivated with him. The Anthropocene – argument in the popular sphere basically says this, the problem of global climate change and the transgression of other planetary thresholds, um, like the acidification of the ocean, uh, uh, that these problems originate in what's called a great acceleration. The great acceleration uh, uh, is sometimes dated from World War II, uh, but often the origins of this uh, problem of global warming and mass extinction and all the rest—the origins are are most frequently rooted in the Industrial Revolution with the steam engine and coal, sometime around 1800. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a popular historical narrative that the Anthropocene speaks to. And before I I go on to, uh, uh, or we go on to talk more about that, I would also acknowledge that there is the Anthropocene as a geological discussion that uh, uh, involves geologists who are searching for uh, what are colloquially, colloquially known as golden spikes. Yeah. So those are significant stratigraphic signals in the, the Earth's uh, uh, geology, the the stratigraphy of the Earth. And that's an important and necessary and valuable and indispensable project. So there's Anthropocene as a project of what we might call natural history and of looking at the the Earth's Stratigraphy, uh, in order to understand something about how humans and other species and the Earth have all uh, entwined to produce this curious, terrifying, disastrous state of planetary affairs that we live in right now. So there are really two souls of the Anthropocene argument. One is geological, and I think that is completely worthwhile. The other slips into the questions of how history is made by humans and the rest of nature, Mm -hmm. and that's where it gets very dangerous because at the end of the day, what the Anthropocene as a historical argument says is that the problems of planet Earth are the problems and responsibility of all humans. And while they might be the responsibility of all humans, we know that, that uh, they were not created by uh, all humans, that the problems of uh, global warming, mass extinction, ocean acidification, and all the rest, those problems were created by a definite group of human beings, a capitalist class in many different uh, uh, times and places, but originating not with the steam engine, but in the long 16th century, between about 1450 and 1640, that's when the relations of power and production and reproduction in the web of life that we call capitalism began to form.
1: So you really see that capitalism is a, in this capital class is really responsible for um, developing what, what generally would be called the Anthropocene, but you would call the Capitalocene. Um, but one question I had that I didn't see in your book um, is a discussion of, you know, the big 20th century attempts to create alternatives to capitalism, such as most notably in the Soviet Union, its satellite states, and post-revolutionary China. Um, the socialist project in the Soviet Union was very dependent on fossil fuels, especially mm-hmm. coal. Um, and then during the Great Leap Mo- Forward, Mao sought to surpass Great Britain in industrial capacity, which they were not successful at, but would have entailed a massive use of fossil fuels. So I guess what I'd like to get a better sense of you, how do you think these socialist experiments fit within your understanding of world environmental history and world ecology over the past couple of hundred years? Um, do you see it maybe as some on the left as the socialist projects in the USSR and uh, mid 20th century China as examples of state capitalism. Um, and then therefore they're just another example of the the processes of capitalism in creating the capitalist thing that you talk about in the book?
0: I think that the first thing that I look at when I look at what do states do, and here I've been influenced by uh, the recent arguments of uh, Christian Parenti. I look at what do states do in relation to the land and to human populations. And so as a historian, I look to see, the kinds of ruptures that occur in the state's relation to land and labor. And in the case of the Soviet Union, I think that we are very hard-pressed to identify a massive rupture or a significant qualitative rupture between Tsarist Russia and its developmentalism and Stalin. So sometimes that's dismissed as saying, well, you know, you're just saying that nothing changed. And of course, there were important changes. Uh, it's not clear to me, for instance, that uh, a czarist uh, or even a, a Republican government would have smashed the Nazi war machine in World War II. Uh, so I think there are specific differences. But if we look at how at the big developmentalist projects, especially in industry and in the countryside, we are very hard pressed to see. Uh, A significant rupture in the Soviet experience. After all, the Soviets learned big agriculture from the Americans, Mm -hmm. and the Soviets learned big industry from the Americans as well as uh, other Central and Western Europeans. So I think we need to ask the question historically at the same time as we can identify perhaps possibilities in the deployment of state power to Perhaps do something positive, but in the case of the Soviets, we're really hard pressed to see that. Uh, the the death of the RLC, the the, the uh, extraordinary degree of environmental toxification and devastation that we saw in the Soviet era uh, suggests uh, a very very common uh, uh, historical geography with the rest of the developmentalist world. Uh, keeping in mind that the Soviets were more like Brazil or Mexico than like the United States, just in terms of their wealth and prosperity in the world economy. China, I think, is a bit different. Uh, And in the original draft of the book, I had a very long discussion about the Chinese Red Revolution in agriculture, which did use fertilizer, but was also uh, much more egalitarian than what we call the Green Revolution, which was developed uh, 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 or exported from the United States to South Asia as a direct response to Mao's Red Revolution. Um so I mean, I think that uh we're often uh um, mystified or confused by the the formal or the surface language of these developmentalist states like the the soviet like Stalins Soviet union like uh uh Mao's china. Um, and um, and I think Mao's China is is different in in some significant ways. In the countryside, you saw a profound transformation that was uh, much more equal in terms of, of uh, income, in terms of gender relations, and other other projects. In many ways, the true success of the Maoist project uh, uh, wasn 't realized until the rise of China after one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine mm-hmm. uh, That is the Maoist project really protected a mass peasantry that would then later be dispossessed and sent to work in the factories of Shenzhen and other places.
1: Sure um, going back to some of the other aspects of, of your your work in in your book, you talk about obviously capitalism 's world ecology, but you talk about these world ecological Um, revolution. And I don't, I can't remember if it's like revolution or revolutions. Could you elaborate on that a little bit about what you mean by that term and what would be some examples of that? Well, we know from the history of the
0: modern world that the history of the modern world is the history of agricultural, technological, industrial, and other revolutions, scientific revolutions. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to show that capitalism has renewed itself over a successive long waves of economic boom, long waves of capital accumulation, that capitalism renews and reinvents itself through a series of measures that aim to get the whole of nature to work for free or very low cost. So at the core of capitalism is a system of cheap nature, I say, mm-hmm. and in capitalism, the law of value is a law of cheap nature, and it 's about getting the rest of nature humans included to work for free or low cost so every what i 'm trying to do is to show that there have indeed been historical limits to capitalist development. the era of the industrial revolution, which is not well understood by non historians very well, um, is a prime example of this, that between 1750 and 1820, there was a serious and profound agroecological crisis. There was a food price crisis per capita. Consumption of food actually declined in England during this period. Food prices uh, increased twice as fast as the industrial price index, and So serious was this threat that David Ricardo, one of the founders of political economy, was terrified that rising food prices would throttle industrialization. Now, as we know, that food price crisis, that agrarian crisis, and there was more than just a food price crisis at the time, also one of raw materials and relatedly of labor, uh, that these interlinked crises were ultimately resolved. And in the popular imaginary, they're resolved By the steam engine. And so, in the popular imagination, and I think even for many critical intellectuals, there is a tendency to think technology, technology, technology. And what I'm trying to do, I think, at the heart of this book is to say that the big technological innovations of the modern world, these epoch-making technologies like the steam engine, or before that, the cartographic and shipbuilding revolutions, or after that, the internal uh, combustion and jet engine revolutions, that these technical innovations were epoch-making because they allowed labor productivity to increase amongst humans in the industrial cores, but they also allowed for mobilizing the work of nature for free or low cost on a massive scale. So the steam engine works and is initially developed uh, at the pit heads of, of coal mines. And that so cheap nature is right at the center of, of the ongoing technological development of the steam engine over the 18th century. But after 1800, as we see the, the globalization of rail and steamship networks, We see for the first time a planetary scale of capitalism and a planetary scale of capitalism, not in terms of absolute commodification, but in terms of audacious appropriations of cheap labor, food, energy and raw material. So for the first time, you had a globe encircling steel network to suck up the wealth and work of nature including human nature on an absolutely unprecedented scale so if we want to ask about this period between 1870 more or less, and 1970, more or less. We can explain an awful lot by the, the reality of, of steam and then the oil internal combustion complex and the mass production complexes of Fordism really being based on massive cheap natures, not just energy, not just rubber, not just steel, uh, but also cheap human labor. Mm-hmm. Because what did, these, what did these networks do? Well, the gunship, And the rifle followed the railroads and the steamships. And so did the the world market. And that utterly destabilized the peasant formations of South Asia, of East Asia. And as we know, in North America, of Eastern and Southern Europe, those peasants came to the United States from 1870 until World War I. And that was the real human basis of the mass industrialization of that period mm-hmm. cheaply.
1: But you see this era of cheap na- nature is coming to an end or disappearing. Can you talk about that, please? That's right. So if we understand cheap nature in a specific sense,
0: that uh, uh, historically empires, states, markets, capitalists, have worked in tandem with science, with other processes to make Planetary nature and planetary work legible for economic development. So that's been the pattern for the past five centuries. And, of course, we've seen no shortage of that over the past 40 years. The uh, mapping of the human genome, uh, planetary surveillance with the 2,000 or more satellites ringing the planet, um, GIS and other mapping technologies that we've seen uh, a, a huge series of projects in recent decades, but there's a much longer process to that. The colonial bio prospecting going back to the 16th, 17th centuries, the uh, projects of classifying uh, nature spearheaded by Linnaeus, uh, mm-hmm. the Kew gardens, uh, the British Imperial gardens in the 19th century. We have a long history of um, science and empire and capital working together to make the uh, planetary wealth and work available for modern economic development. And what I'm saying in the book is that essentially that was a long frontier process, that the rise of the modern world occurs through not just the occupation and conquest of frontier spaces, but through the production of frontier spaces in a very specific way that empires and states would lead the way uh, uh, capitalists would follow and, uh, they would set to work in these new frontier zones that were frontiers of capitalization. So there are very little, uh, economic activity in the way that the modern world thinks of economic activity. Mm-hmm. So this was essentially at the core of modern economic growth for four centuries. The idea of frontiers as the site of cheap natures, cheap labor, food, energy, and raw materials. And that, and it turns out that This relates to your question about uh, world ecological revolutions and crises that every great crisis of the modern world of modern world accumulation of, of the world economy has been resolved through new frontier movements. So we all know in geography, David Harvey's the new imperialism. Well, neoliberalism gives us a new imperialism. It turns out that every great era of capitalist development has been accompanied by a new imperialism, most famously and most recently in the late 19th century, but we can also look at uh, the middle of the 18th century and, of course, uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries. So uh, that's a way of saying that... Capitalism depends at the end of the day on securing new cheap natures in order to make investment profitable. And so uh, just to to highlight that point – We, as critical social scientists and critical scholars in the humanities, we need to think about that relationship between technology and investment, these core issues of political economy that often seem just frightfully dry. Mm -hmm. We need to think about those as fundamentally tied towards putting cheap natures to work. Those frontiers are now ending. Yes, there are little pockets of frontiers. You can go to uh, uh, Sumatra and Borneo and see the the palm oil uh, plantations expanding. You can go to the Mato Grosso in uh, Brazil. You can go and see little pockets of these frontiers. But the mass of money floating around in world financial circuits basically tells us this that there's no cheap natures to go and invest profitably in. That's what the railroads did. That's what the automobile complex did. They basically uh, were dependent on cheap nature and flowed and became and opened up profitable opportunities because there was cheap nature for the taking in unprecedented flows. That era is now over, not just for cheap food, energy, and and raw materials, and we can talk more about energy if you want, uh, but also for cheap labor.
1: Well, there's a lot more to talk about with this, and I only um, need to bring things to a close. I only have a few more questions for you, but one does go to this issue of kind of the end of cheap nature and thinking about, more broadly, some of the political implications of your work. I noticed on the back of your book uh, that Naomi Klein Um, gave it a very nice plug but among other things naomi klein as you will know has a new book that's received a lot of attention called this changes everything capitalism versus the climate and naomi klein as well as many other um, social justice and environmental activists are in paris right now Uh, we're recording this while the the climate talks are going on in paris so since you have in your work talk a lot about climate change and reckoning with a time when both cheap nature is over in your estimation, but also where we are dealing with the consequences of climate change and probably more serious consequences to come. What would you like ideally to see some of the, the, I mean the consequences of your work if, if activists for instance were picking this up, what maybe lessons would you like them to draw from it?
0: I think that, In the, I think that in the first place that many of the social movements are already ahead of the curve on this, not universally, and I don't want to romanticize, but I think if you look at a movement like the family of movements around food justice and food sovereignty, Mm -hmm. and you ask, what are they saying? They're saying that the relationships of production and reproduction, both human reproduction and the reproduction of life in general, are fundamentally linked. And they're saying that the right to food as a biological need, as a democratic process, and as a right to cultural determination are fundamental to each other. So you cannot separate off those demands in the way that perhaps earlier movements uh, 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 might have been. So I think that there's what I would what I've called the new ontological politics. And I think that we see it emerging in different places unevenly. Tentatively. Uh, Again, we don't want to romanticize, but food sovereignty and food justice, climate justice, um, the right to the city, and other movements, uh, perhaps degrowth in Europe, they are all, I think, putting together issues of production, reproduction, and sustainability in the best sense of the term in an emerging discourse and an emerging politics. And I think that's important because we are living through the period of capitalism's exhaustion of what it's been best at doing. It's been best at launching new productivity revolutions. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the past 40 years in world agriculture, productivity growth has absolutely stagnated. And I talk a bit about that in the book. Also, if we look at labor productivity, in the 1970s, there was a popular discourse that said the future is a future of robot factories. Mm -hmm. Instead, we got the global sweatshop. Yeah. So that speaks to the exhaustion of capitalism's productivist potential. And if we think about how capitalists uh, in, in countries across the world have been able to culturally cement their rule, it is largely through the promise of a better life. Mm-hmm. And that promise is now pretty much off the table. So I think in terms of what we are likely to see, I think there are really two big possibilities. One and we have a lot of examples of this right now. Is an intensification of a hyper militarized and securitized neoliberalism. So build the walls higher, build the uh, surveillance apparatus stronger, uh, police the unruly, uh, so-called surplus populations. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, uh, that's already in process. We've learned just recently that the wealth of the 1% next year will overtake the wealth of the 99% on a planetary scale for the first time. So uh, that's uh, a very difficult situation for the world's ruling classes to deal with. On the other hand I think that we are seeing the rise of this new ontological politics uh, around food justice, climate justice, um the right to the city around uh, uh justice in uh, amongst labor unions amongst uh, uh um healthcare workers, teachers and others. So I think the implications are this. How do we pursue a strategy of of liberation based on democratisation Decommodification that links simultaneously the domain of reproduction, childcare, elder care, all the rest of industrial production, and of capitalism as a whole, and and the processes of investment and capital accumulation, which again sound terribly dry, but I want to suggest that. It's important for activists as well as intellectuals to really look at how capitalism works in its basic processes of boom and bust, because I think that will tell us something significant about how these three domains or spheres, if you will, production, reproduction, and capitalism as a whole are fitting together. And it will tell us something about the nature of the limits
1: that we are confronting in the 21st century. Um. I'd like to end now after you've talked about kind of some of the political implications of your work about what s- some of the things that you're working on now. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your uh, um, new book on the Anthropocene and the Scene, as well as maybe any other projects you're working on.
0: Well, the first thing that uh, I'm working on is Raj Patel and I are doing uh, a popular world ecology book uh, called Seven Cheap Things. And those include cheap nature, labor, energy, food, but also care, also money and credit. And also lives, and, and and this has been highlighted, of course, in, in recent years by Black Lives Matter, but we need to ask the question of, under capitalism, whose lives matter and whose don't, and once we start to ask that question – if you look at it historically and also in the language that has been used around those themes, around women's lives, people's, uh, the lives of people of color, the lives of colonial populations, we start to see that this nature-society dualism, the separation of humanity on one side and society on, on another are tightly uh, implicated. So we are looking for a way to broaden this debate so that we can begin to have a popular conversation around these seemingly abstract ideas of humanity and society and the importance of that, um, to bring that uh, into the popular arena in the way that the Anthropocene, I think, has simultaneously opened up and closed down. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the first uh, uh, big uh, project that we're uh, in the midst of wrapping up. And then, yes, we are. Uh, uh, I've just finished a book for PM Press called Anthropocene or Capitalocene, and here we have some some great established scholars like uh, Christian Parenti, Donna Haraway, and some younger scholars as well. Really raising questions and exploring and frankly, criticizing the Anthropocene as a popular historical narrative. And we're trying to, I think, in particular, uh, in terms of the politics, challenge the catastrophism that has taken over the radical imaginary around climate. Uh, uh, the uh, Radical Magazine Monthly Review, I think, is a good example of this, but not the only one. That The sense that uh, either we're going to have revolution or catastrophe, and... In our view, in the view of, of, a, of a growing number of people, that's very disabling for our politics because we don't live in these, these black and white questions of revolution or catastrophism we, or catastrophe. We live in a messy, multi-species muddle of trying to shift our politics in a more emancipatory direction and, and to really be clear about the kinds of limits, but also the kinds of possibilities we face uh, for fundamental social and, I would say, world ecological transformation.
1: Well, I can't wait to read um, all of those and to both read them and assign them to my students in my classes. Um, There's a lot more to talk about with this book, and I really encourage listeners to, um, to pick up Jason Moore's book. And I'd just like to thank you for taking some time out of your day to be here on New Books in Geography.
0: Thanks so much, Bob. It's been an honor.